Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. While Stanford University professor and management and organisational behaviour expert, Jeffrey Pfeffer has published a new book, Dying for a Paycheck. The book details how modern management practices harm both employee health and company performance, and Jeffrey joins me now to discuss this in more detail. So, Jeffrey, how would you describe the modern workplace? Uh, the modern workplace <laughs> is pretty bad. It is filled with stress, as we know from lots of research. And as I describe in my book, Dying for a Paycheck, it is uh, literally killing people. And it's costing governments around the world a lot of money because the healthcare crisis and the healthcare cost crisis runs right through the workplace. Now, in your latest book, Dying for a Paycheck, you also address how modern management practices are harming both employee health and company performance. Specifically, what types of practices are causing the damage? Well, there are many. Number one, work hours in many countries. Work hours have gone up. Certainly in the United States, they've gone up quite a bit. And not only have work hours gone up, but people don't disconnect from work. One survey said that 81% of people checked emails when they were at home or on vacation. So even when you're not at work, you're actually working. Work hours, we know, are not good for health. They raise blood pressure and also raise mortality. Uh, there's a lot of research out now on sleep. Then you can, of course, and how important sleep is, and you cannot be sleeping and working at the same time. So work hours would be one thing. Second thing, which is really a characteristic of the modern workplace, is economic insecurity. Certainly people in Ireland understand layoffs and all the uncertainties that have come with the modern economy. Economic insecurity, job loss, adversely affects health. When you're laid off, your suicide rate goes up about two and a half times, according to much epidemiological research done in countries around the world. Your risk of dying from a heart attack goes up about 40 percent. Um, economic insecurity is very harmful to health. A third cause of stress in the modern workplace is the inability to accommodate both your work obligations and your family obligations. So work-family conflict adversely affects both physical and mental health, and that is also quite common. And finally, in the world of computers and everybody being monitored all the time, many people are micromanaged. And the famous United Kingdom um, epidemiologist Sir Michael Marmot years ago in his famous Whitehall studies found that the higher your rank in the British civil service, the lower your risk of having cardiovascular disease. And when he looked at to why that was, it turns out that the higher your rank in the British civil service, the more control you had over the conditions of your work. So we know that job control is very, very important for people's health. People find it stressful to be micromanaged, and with uh, all this computer monitoring of everything, there's much more micromanagement running around as well. And is it these stressors and the subsequent health problems suffered by the employees which adversely affect the company's performance? Absolutely. I mean, we know, because there have been surveys done of this, not surprisingly, stress leads to turnover. Turnover is expensive. <laughs> People have done studies. This, again, is pretty obvious, but they've actually done empirical studies of this, that if you're sick, your productivity is lower. And we've known for 40 or 50 years that giving people more autonomy at work increases their engagement and their motivation. We've known for really little decades, there's been research that shows that layoffs do not increase productivity, profitability, or stock price. And we also know, because there's a lovely chart in The Economist magazine that shows this, that countries, there's a nice chart on one axis, the horizontal axis, is hours, average hours worked by country. 
on the vertical axis per hour productivity, it goes down linearly. The countries with the highest levels of work hours have the lowest levels of productivity, and that is a finding that has been replicated longitudinally in industries as well. As it, within industries, as work hours goes up, per hour productivity goes down. So we, we're not getting anything. We have created in many of these workplaces truly a lose-lose situation in which people are being made sick for nothing. Now, we know from experience that if something happens in the U.S., we feel the impact of it a couple of years later. So how much of a problem is this in the U.S. at present? It's a huge problem in the U.S. Um, Two colleagues in Operations Research and I did a a bunch of empirical studies. First of all, we find that the workplaces, uh, the workplace practices we've discussed, plus a few others I haven't mentioned, are as harmful to health as secondhand smoke. That's number one. Number two, we find that the workplaces in aggregate are counting for about 120,000 deaths each year in the United States, and that would make uh, the workplace the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. worse than Alzheimer's or kidney disease. And unlike Alzheimer's or kidney disease, this could be easily prevented if we wanted to. And for those, you know, listeners, again, you know, this is Ireland. I'm not sure I've seen any data on Ireland, but there's a lot of data from the Health and Safety Executive, HSE, in the UK, which talks about the enormous percentage of days uh, lost to sickness that come from stress, the cost that stress is exacting on the UK economy. There are studies done in Canada which talk about the same issue. There are studies done in Australia which talk about, again, the enormous cost to the Australian economy from workplace stress and lost work days and productivity loss because of this. So this is a really worldwide problem. It's not just a US problem. And of course, there's lots of metrics out there in relation to absenteeism, but there's very few metrics I come across about presenteeism where people are actually at work, but they're just not functional. That's exactly right. Presenteeism is a huge problem, and that is, you're absolutely correct. So, Jeffrey, for the business owners and managers that are listening this morning, how can they implement management practices which do not harm their employees? Well, it's actually pretty simple, and it's not even that expensive. So we know, again, from decades of research that social support is very important, both for reducing stress and buffering people from the, from the effects of stress. And social support comes from things like putting people in teams and having social events and basically signaling to your employees that you care about their well-being and you see them not just as factors of production but as, but as truly human beings, which of course they are. So things like you know, uh, putting together schemes to help people when they've had severe you know, financial setbacks or tragedies in their, in their personal life. So, for instance, I have a friend who runs, actually, his company's headquartered, like all pharmaceutical companies are in Ireland, but he has an office in Philadelphia. And when one of his employees, a young woman, but her husband uh, dropped dead very suddenly and unexpectedly, they offered uh, babysitting, they offered food, and he said to her, basically, take as much time off as you need to, and we'll continue to pay your salary. And the babysitting and the food and all this other stuff Stuff really is not so important for, for what it is, but it's a signal that she's not going through this hard time in her life alone, that, she, that there are her friends around her, and that the organization will come together to support her. So social support is very important. Putting people in teams, letting, building a strong culture of mutual kind of respect and collaboration is one thing that companies can do. It doesn't cost them very much money. Second thing that companies can do is let people make decisions. I mean, you know, when you're a young kid, 
your parents tell you what to do, then you grow up, you become independent, and then one day you go to work and your boss begins to tell you what to do again. If we stopped infantilizing people and let them make more decisions and have more discretion on the job, they would feel better and they wouldn't be micromanaged and have all the stress from being micromanaged. Now, for many years, we heard the term work-life balance being mentioned, but now the new term, of course, is wellness programmes. Some companies see them as a box-ticking exercise, where other companies embrace them wholeheartedly. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think wellness programs are fine, but, you know, I see these companies that talk about stress reduction and stress management, and I tell them they ought to be engaged in stress prevention. Um, We know from the quality movement, and we know from experience in many domains of life, that prevention is much more effective, and it's certainly much more cost-effective than remediation. So instead of giving people nap pods, let them have enough sleep. Instead of giving people stress reduction, create a work environment that doesn't produce the stress in the first place. Now, in your own opinion, do you think that remote working is an emerging trend and is going to grow exponentially over the next 10 years? Remote working is certainly an emerging trend. The other emerging trend, which I think is not going to be so good for people, is this gig economy. The idea, you know, many years ago we used to have careers and then we have jobs and jobs have now turned into gigs. And the problem with gigs is that people never know from one week to the next precisely what their income is going to be. And they don't know precisely from one minute to the next where their next gig will come from. And most people will find that, of course, very stressful, the economic insecurity that comes from that. What do you think the future holds for remote working? I think it's hard to say. I mean, you know, Marissa Mayer, when she became CEO of Yahoo, stopped remote working. So it's, you know, I I never try to predict the future. The future always, (laughs) always confounds me. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking to author and Stanford University professor Jeffrey Pfeffer. Jeffrey, you've also written books on the topic of leadership, but what do you think is the core problem with the leaders in our organizations today? There are many problems with the leaders in our organizations today, but with the, probably the core problem with many leaders in our organizations today is contrary to Simon Sinek's famous book, Leaders Eat Last, most leaders are taking care of themselves first and everybody else far down the line. So people are pretty much pursuing their self-interest and leaving, you know, and not really caring for, um, for the people around them. And to return to the theme, I think this is, ties in to the, uh, to the issue of which I explore in Dying for a Paycheck. Look, when you go to work in, in the morning, you have, in a very real and substantive way, entrusted your psychological and physical well-being to the people that you work for. A friend of mine named Bob Chapman has a quote, which is, I'm sure, correct. He says, according to the Mayo Clinic, the person you report to at work is more important for your health than your family doctor. And that has to be correct. So leaders ought to understand that people have really entrusted their well-being to those leaders. And leaders ought to be good stewards of that responsibility but many of them are not. For many years, there has been significant emphasis placed on leadership development programmes. But in your opinion, have these programmes been misguided? Most of the programmes are completely ineffective, and they're ineffective for a very simple reason. Again, we've, you know, if anybody paid attention to the lessons of the quality movement, they'd be much better off. So we know what is measured 
focuses people's attention. And what is measured in most of these leadership development programs is whether the people attending them have had a good time. And so therefore, we get entertainment, or some of my colleagues call it edutainment. And so leadership development programs ought to be evaluated not by whether or not you like the speaker and you got like inspired or something, but whether or not at the end of the day, leadership behaviors really changed, employee engagement went up, turnover went down. In other words, we ought to evaluate leadership development by real outcomes, not by whether or not people thought they, you know, liked the donuts and (laughs) had a nice experience. Now, you mentioned the term employee engagement. How can this be harnessed for the greater good of the company? Well, we know, I mean, the Gallup has done studies of this for years, uh, that engaged employees are more productive. Uh, Companies with a higher percentage of engaged employees uh, perform at a much higher level. And the Gallup surveys also show, uh, depressingly, that uh, around the world, only about 15% of employees are engaged. 85% are either disengaged or actively disengaged, which Gallup defines as trying to sabotage their employer. So the level of employee engagement is low around the world which, by the way, also tells you the leadership development programs have failed. The Edelman Trust Barometer will show that trust in leaders is low pretty much worldwide, and trust in business leaders is particularly low. So we have, the good news is, we have lots of room for improvement. And if we did, uh, performance would be up, and employee health would be better, and countries' health care costs would go down. And, of course, active employee disengagement can be quite destructive within an organization. So when it arises... How should it be addressed? Well, we ought to figure out, again, very much like the healthcare stuff and the healthcare cost stuff, we ought to figure out what is causing the disengagement and change the practices and change out the leaders. I mean, if you look at the companies that are doing well on many of these dimensions, places like SAS Institute, the software company that operates around the world, or Patagonia, the clothing company, uh, they will not tolerate abusive managers and managers who are, you know, emailing their employees at all hours of the day and night and expecting responses and so on and so forth. And so, you know, to the extent that organizations take workplace well-being seriously, they will, you know, they will uh, do do better. They'll perform better, and they will, um, and they'll also drive down uh, people's healthcare costs. So, ultimately, in your opinion, what makes an effective leader? What makes an effective leader is someone who understands his or her impact on the humans who work for that individual. You know, I think it goes back to this issue of stewardship. Do you take your responsibilities as a steward of other people's well-being seriously, or are you mostly in it for yourself? Or do you measure your results only just in terms of financial outcomes? You know, we affect people's physical and psychological well-being. And if, if leaders understood their impact on the, on the lives of the human beings who come to work for them every day and took that responsibility seriously, I think that is the first and most important step to making workplaces healthier and more productive. And Jeffrey, how important is power within the workplace environment? Well, power is extremely important because you can't get anything done if you can't influence other people. So what strategies can be implemented to increase an employee's power within a business? Oh my goodness. Well, you know, I teach a 10-week course on that, so giving you... giving you a quick answer is going to be a little tough. I would tell everybody uh, that I read my book called Power, why some people have it and others don't. But, you know, I think you ought to build the characteristic and attributes that produce power. You need to build the social networks of relationships 
because we get things done through and with other people. Uh, we need to learn to act and speak with power so that how people carry themselves and being able to uh, project and, have, uh, and, and speak with confidence is a, an important source of power. I think those are three things that people could do. And finally, Jeffrey, what are your top tips for Irish businesses around the area of organizational behavior and management effectiveness? Well, I guess my top tip goes back to what we've been talking about in our in our brief time together, and I thank you very much for having me on your uh, program. My top tip is to understand the, that there are no really there are no real trade offs between taking care of your people and taking care of your profits. Uh, that the, 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 you'll have you'll be much more profitable and effective as an enterprise to the extent that you have people who want to work with you, who are engaged, who don't leave, who don't quit, who come to work and engage and and give you discretionary effort. In order to do that, you have to basically let them make decisions, you have to look out for their well-being, and you have to make sure that they're both psychologically and physically healthy. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.